Have you ever heard the saying, don't bother looking for the perfect church? Because if you ever find it and join it, well, it won't be perfect anymore. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there actually was such a thing as the perfect church, where everyone was always kind and considerate and loving, where everyone always agreed, where the teaching was always fantastic, it was pitched at just the right level, it was not too complicated and not too simplistic, where the application was always challenging but not too challenging, uh, where the music was exactly right, was not too modern and not too old, not too fast and not too slow, not too loud and not too soft, where the seats were just right, the lighting was always spot on and the temperature was always perfect. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Well, of course, it's ridiculous even to imagine it because there's no such thing as a perfect church. And even if it was perfect for you, it wouldn't suit somebody else. The reality is there's no perfect church because each church is made up of sinful people like you and I. And yet the message of this passage here in 1 Corinthians 1 is that in a sense each church is perfect. Each church is perfect because it belongs to God and he's fully equipped it for the job he's given it. The church is God's perfect place for imperfect Christians like you and I. We have everything God intends us to have and so in a sense we are already part of a perfect church. That's what Paul thinks about, uh, as, uh, that's what Paul thinks of the Corinthian church. Uh, in lots of ways it's a church with plenty of problems, we'll see more of that in the weeks ahead. But right here at the beginning Paul wants to thank God for the things that are good at Corinth. How does Paul describe the church? Well first and most importantly there in verse 2 we read it's the church of God in Corinth. Whose church is it? It's God's church. It's not the church of St Andrew, it's not the Presbyterian church, it's not the church of Our Lady of the Rosary, it's God's church. Right at the start he puts the Corinthians in their right place. This particular group of Christians is not independent, it's not separate, it's not self-governing, They're not a republic, they're not a democracy, this is God's church. If you like, the church is a theocracy where God rules. But not just are they God's church, they're one small part of a bigger picture. You see there also in verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, there are bigger plans at stake than just one local church's concerns. Each church is about building something bigger, about building God's kingdom rather than just their own little empire. And so what that means when it comes down to it, when the rubber hits the road, is that there shouldn't be competition between churches. It's not about there are competitors down the road. We should rejoice when there is another church that's active and healthy and growing. Praise God, we should say. If this is God's church, then it means it's not your church either. It doesn't belong to you. It may be the church you come to, it may be the church of which you're a member, but it's not your church. It's not my church. It's not the Presbyterian's denomination's church. This is God's church. He has the right to decide what we do 
God's priorities should be our priorities. God's kingdom is our chief concern. His purposes are our purposes. His methods are our methods. And so what all of that means, as the rubber hits the road, is we need to be hearing what God says his church should be doing. We need to be hearing his words from the Bible. They're much more important uh, than having planning sessions or strategy meetings. They're, They're much more important than reading the latest books or attending the latest seminars. It's God's church. He'll show us how to run it. And look at what God's purposes are for his church. Verse 2 again. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. God wants his church to be set apart for his purposes. He sanctified them already in Jesus. He set them apart. It's something that's already happened. When they believed in Jesus, when they were made, when they were born again, in a sense, God put them to one side. He made them different. And they are to be different. They're called to be different. And God wants them to actually live different lives as well. That word for sanctified is the same word we get saints from and holiness from. This is not saying that only special people are saints. It's saying that every Christian is a saint. Each Christian has been set apart by God as his child. Each Christian is in a different category from the rest of the world, from those who are not Christian. And he's done that for a purpose. He's set them apart as his children for a purpose. He's called them to be holy, to live out who they actually are, to be pure, to be like God himself. That's what they're here for. That's what we're here for. Now, to be holy, Paul introduces it here right at the beginning, but it is a, it's going to be a theme that he comes back to again and again through 1 Corinthians. Because in lots of ways, the Corinthian church didn't look different. In fact, in fact, they blended in a little too well with the immorality and the darkness around them. And so Paul is saying here at the start of his letter, you are called to be different, to be set apart. You actually need to act like that. Live up to it, live up to your calling. And I guess we need to ask ourselves that same question too, don't we? We've been called to be holy, to be different. How different are we from the people around us? Is there a difference in your joy and the contentment you have with life when things are difficult? Do people look at the way you relate, that you cope with difficulties and recognise something different about you? If we had a look at your diary and we spent broke down how you spent your week, would there be a difference in the things that you assign your time to compared to the people around you? What about how you work? What are you like as a workmate? How are you different from the people around you? How do you cope with criticism? How do you cope with difficulties? How do you cope with long hours and difficult people? Well, what about how you speak to people? Is there a difference especially among those people who don't actually know you're a Christian? Is there a grace and an acceptance and a gentleness about your speech? Uh, Something different from the short-tempered, self-centred, impatient talk 
of those around you. Or what about us as a group? We're to be different as well. How does this group of God's people differ from, say, the RSL club or the local soccer club? If someone overheard our conversations and looked at how we related to each other, would they say that group of people is different from anything I've seen before? That's what God wants. He's called us to be holy. He's set us apart as his children and he wants us to live that out. Well, that's the first thing about God's perfect church. The second point we see about God's perfect church is that he's, uh, it's been gifted uh, by God. They're rich in God's gifts. Have a look at what Paul thanks God for in verse 4. Uh, as, you, as we keep reading the letter, it won't, realize, it won't take us long to realise there are lots of wrong things with the church. Uh, it, it was full of divisions and disagreements. There was sexual immorality. People were actually suing each other. They were criticising Paul. Uh, They'd have a church dinner and the rich would get there early and they would stuff themselves. And then when the poor finally arrived, they'd go hungry. There was no food left. Their church meetings were shambles because everybody was calling out at once. Uh, They loved their spiritual gifts and they were proud of the power that they had because of their gifts. Now, That's what the church is like. There's plenty of things Paul could have said to begin this letter with. But instead Paul chooses to thank God for them. And he thanks God because after all this is God's church. He's the one responsible for it. He's the one who has given the gifts. He's the one who will cause it to grow and so the thanks needs to go to God. It's the right perspective to have, isn't it? There's no reason to be proud of something that you've received as a gift. It's nonsense. It's God who deserves the thanks. He's the cause of it all. Notice that the gifts also come because of Jesus. Paul says in verse 4, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. God looks on us favourably as his children because of Jesus, because we're in Jesus. We're connected to him. He's the means, he's the cause of all that we have. Paul then moves from thanks in general, he moves into the specifics, particular things that God has given. And what's surprising are the particular things he mentions. Now if it was me, if I had a whole whole list of things that I wanted to criticise them for, I'd actually find something else to be thankful for. It's a bit like when I had to write school reports Uh, You've got these bad things you want to say about students but you you try and rack your brain to come up with something nice to say. Uh, Even the worst student, he may be badly behaved, she can't write or spell but you've got to begin with something nice to say and so it might be, well Jimmy tries hard, that's a popular one. Uh, Or or Jenny sits up straight. Uh, If you get really desperate, John has a nice part in his hair. Or, or Sonia has shiny shoes. That you're really finding something nice to say. But that's not what Paul does. He actually thanks God for the very things that are causing problems in the Corinthian church. Have a look at verse 5. Uh, we thank God for, who's gifted you, for in him you've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Now, speaking and knowledge are the two blind spots for the Corinthian church. 
Corinth as a city, as a culture, they loved eloquent speakers. The orators were the rock stars of the day. They were, the Anthony, they were like Anthony Robbins or, or stand-up comedians. They'd, they'd go around from town to town and they'd get paid for just standing up and delivering these beautiful speeches. And then there was knowledge. Uh, Greek philosophy taught that knowledge was the highest form of good. Forget, forget service, forget loving people. If you had knowledge, that was what lifted you out of the everyday. It lifted you onto a higher plane of consciousness. And so it seemed like the Corinthians were grabbing hold of both speaking and knowledge and cherishing those things. And, and they looked down on Paul because his speech wasn't fancy like the orators. It wasn't wise and polished. Chapter 2, Paul has to defend his reputation. And so speech and knowledge were the very things that the Corinthians were proud of, that they had lots of, that they were doing really well at. And here Paul agrees. He says they've been enriched. But notice that Paul is thanking God for giving them the gifts. So in a sense he's undercutting the pride that they have because they do those things well. But by thanking God for what he's given them, he's actually saying, you guys have got no reason to be proud. Uh, speaking and knowledge are simply gifts from God. Because of course it's not the gifts themselves that are the problem. Uh, speaking and knowledge can't be the problem. They're, they're actually gifts from God himself. But the problem comes when the attitude behind those gifts or the attitude that uses those gifts is wrong. Gifts should never be used proudly. They should always be used out of love. As soon as a gift is used from the wrong motive, the benefit is lost. Look at how Paul puts it in chapter 13. They're very familiar words, chapter 13 verse 1, but notice in particular as he talks about love being important, how he uses it in the context of speech and knowledge. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm just a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. You see, speech and knowledge without love, there's nothing. But when they are used with love, then, then they're great gifts that we need to thank God for. And that's why Paul does it. So what about you? What motivates you to use the gifts God's given you? Are you motivated by love? Love for God, love for his people? Or are there other reasons? There almost always are when we use our gifts. But we often, we nearly always have mixed motivations. Perhaps you want to be noticed or respected or appreciated. Perhaps you like to be the centre of attention. Or maybe your motivation is internal rather than external. It makes you feel good about yourself when you help or serve other people and when they say nice things about you. 
Or maybe there's this nagging doubt that somehow as you do a ministry, you'll be more acceptable to God. You can earn yourself a little closeness to God. Or maybe you're not using your gifts at all, which is no better really. Not using your gifts can also come from a selfish, self-centred motivation. The reality is God has gifted every one of his children and yet you are not using the gifts God's given you. You don't think his gifts are valuable enough to use. You've, You've just got them stored up there in the cupboard. We actually show our gratitude to God by using his gifts with humble, loving attitudes. Second point, church is is rich in God's gifts. The third characteristic of this perfect church is connected to this one about gifts. The church waits eagerly for Jesus. Notice the connection in verse 7. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Gifts are connected to waiting for Jesus to return. The purpose of gifts is to use them to prepare for Jesus' return. Gifts are not just for now. They're not for our own amusement. They're not to pass the time. Gifts are to be used with a goal in mind. There is an intention to the use of our gifts. It's like the difference between playing a computer flight simulator, a computer game, and actually going down to the airport and and sitting there in a a jet flight Boeing simulator. Uh, There are two people who are playing with a set of controls and they might look pretty similar. Uh, Like they're doing the similar things, they're taking off and they're landing and they're coping with different conditions, but one is doing it from no real purpose. They're just doing it to score points or to to go up a level or to, to make it to the end or to enjoy themselves. That's the way the Corinthians were using their gifts. But for Paul, the Christian life is like that flight simulator uh, where the pilots are actually preparing for an ultimate mission. Uh, They're preparing for the day when people's lives will be in their hands. And so that's helping them focus as they they work on that flight simulator uh, for the day that they get behind the controls of a real plane. And that's the purpose, that's like the, the way we should be using our gifts Gifts are to be used with one eye on Jesus' return. They're to be getting people ready for that day. As we use our gifts, we encourage and we evangelise and we discipline and we teach and we rebuke and pray, we disciple and train and correct people. And all of it has the goal of preparing people, growing them in the likeness of Jesus so that they'll be ready when he comes, so that you'll be ready when he comes, as you stand before him and have to give an account for how you've used your gifts. It's like the parable that Jesus tells about the servants in Matthew 25. Uh, Their master goes on a journey, he puts them in charge until he returns. It's us now. We've been given certain talents to use and each day we're to look after what we've been given and to make it grow. We're to be good stewards so that when he returns, he'll get a return on his investment. Do you use your gifts with that perspective in mind? 
I feel like giving up leading youth group, but I want these kids to be ready for Jesus. I'm sick of teaching Sunday school. No one seems to appreciate me or notice, but I can't wait for Jesus' appreciation of what I do for the well-done, good and faithful servant. Or maybe you can say something like meeting with that person to read the Bible and pray is a real effort. They're needy. I come away feeling drained. But that person needs the encouragement. And when Jesus returns, he's going to expect a report from me about how I've looked after that person. Our gifts are to be used to prepare for Jesus' return. Fourth point. God doesn't just motivate us with the promise of Jesus' return. He actually sustains us so we can make it. You see there in verse 8, he will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus. God has equipped us at every point. Have you noticed that? He calls us at the beginning to be holy. He calls us into sonship and daughtership and then he enriches us with gifts and then he keeps us strong so that we'll make it to the end. So how does God keep us strong? Well, by his spirit. His spirit guides us and protects us and convicts us of sin, gives us new life. His spirit gives us words to say as we witness to him. His spirit uh, increases our faith. But it's not just God's spirit at work in us individually. Uh, There is a plural you there when God says he will keep you strong. If you're an American, it's y'all. He'll keep y'all strong to the end. Or if you're from the western suburbs of Sydney, it's yous. He'll keep yous strong to the end. And that's what God's doing. He keeps his, all of his people strong to the end. We are part of a team sport. Uh, one of the ways he keeps us strong is by the ordinary means of other Christians. And so we each have a responsibility uh, to fulfil God's purposes and help each other to make it to the end. Like Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. You see the connection again. We, God, equips us and keeps us strong to the end and one of the ways he does that is through each other. Are you grateful to God for his work in your life? Are you actually playing your part in the lives of other people, leading them on, getting them ready for Jesus? Well, Paul comes to the end of this little introductory section. He's made lots of big claims. How can we be sure of all of this? We'll see verse 9. We can be confident in all of it because God is faithful. When God begins a job, he sees it through to the end. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, is faithful. He'll bring you to the end. Is Paul confident because of the Corinthians? No. He's confident because of God. God is the reliable one. The Corinthians may not be reliable. You and I may not be reliable. But God will see us through and he'll use each other 
uh, to help achieve his purposes. Right doctrine won't keep us strong to the end. Bible-centred preaching won't keep us strong to the end. Home groups or fancy buildings or friendly, welcoming worship won't keep us strong to the end. It's only God who will keep his perfect church strong to the end. It's his church. He started us, he's called us and set us apart, he's equipped us and he guarantees to bring us blameless before Jesus on that final day. So let's keep working for each other and serving each other in love. Let's keep being thankful for how God has gifted his church and and expressing that in how we use our gifts as we all look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will be revealed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves the way that you describe your church here in the start of Corinthians, that we might see ourselves as called and set apart, as gifted by you, that we might have one eye on your return so that we can work and fulfil your purposes, so that we all make it blameless to the end. Uh, what a great vision to have. Uh, please help us and equip us and help us to achieve uh, your plans. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.